Welcome to Genius Leadership Podcast, where we discuss how to overcome everything as a leader. I'm your host, Anna Liebel, a mind shifter, helping male leaders in tech get out of the firefighting mode, become the proactive leaders they want to be, and enjoy the ride as they go. Join me every week for honest, insightful conversations with corporate, entrepreneurial, and academic leaders. We discuss their roller coaster ride of leading from their zone of genius and when they don't. If you find this show valuable, please subscribe and share it so that more of us can live a healthier and happier life. Now, let's get into the episode. Hey, Genius Leader, you are up for a treat today of the whole hour talking to an entrepreneur who has so much to give from his experience of 30 plus years of running own companies. Today, you will hear my conversation with Herman Goodmanson. He is the Icelandic CEO of the company called Kemi, and he's been in business since 94. I was not yet at school. I was still going in the garden, kindergarten at the time. So it was so valuable for me and so insightful and educating to sit down with Herman and ask him all the questions that I want to know the answers to for myself, selfishly so, and also to get the answers from experience of a person. Uh, for those of you whom I talk to as potential clients, as current clients, uh, and what keeps you up at night. So with Herman, we talk about hiring and developing the team uh, or also inheriting teams, whether it is when you come in as a CEO or a manager uh, into existing team or you acquire a company and need to join the forces with the uh, employees of that company. We talk about what uh, Herman is looking for when he is hiring people, when he is talking and getting to know people of the existing teams in the new uh, companies that join their family. And um, what really are the red signs when you talk to people and uh, what uh, what kind of mindset you want to look for, what kind of skill sets you want to look for. We discuss people who are having narrow focus and those who are more into uh, seeing the big picture and what is the value of both and uh, how Herman is looking for a combination of those two for his teams. We also talk a lot about sales and market market maturity, how you can bring value to uh, to your potential customers to educate them so that they want to become your clients, so that they want to bring business to you. Um, I think uh, the old school um, of going, knocking on the doors, traveling around the country, putting that effort, bootstrapping your company, that all those experiences that Herman is talking about are so valuable and often missed these days with the availability of funding and, and whatnot. And I think we really need to listen carefully to people who have done it, the foot or the leg work uh, the way that Herman did, because it brings so much value and insights that you can use no matter what situation your business is in. We also talk about the personal sacrifice and um, Herman's uh, health challenges that he faced suddenly in 1998 when one morning he woke up with a burnout and mind you, uh, even in 2012, 13, uh, the word burnout was very new to Icelanders. They didn't know the concept. They did not understand what it means. And they would be like, what do you mean burnout? Are you tired? Get, go with me on, on the ship and do the fisherman job and we'll see how tired you are. So that was the attitude 
just 10 years ago. And we are talking about facing a burnout as a CEO of a company uh, in 1998. So we dive into what it meant, how Herman got there, what kind of science he saw or didn't see before, and what learnings he took from that and how that changed his way of doing his business, building it and running it. We also talk about his holidays. He has been taking two months off operational work per year since 14 years back. And it's huge. At that time, he was still running a company called N1, which is the largest fuel and automotive company in Iceland. And he had hundreds of people on the payroll, yet still he managed to build the business so that he would take some time off one month per time, twice a year, to both for himself, but also for the business sake. And we discuss and what it means in practice uh, how is the company running between or in the, in the meantime and what he does with that time and how that affects the business. So lots of amazing insights and very open sharing. And after we stopped recording, Herman said that a lot of questions were really good for himself to reflect and to think about things um, and look back at his journey. So I know that you'll learn a lot from this conversation. Enjoy it. And before we get into it, I want to remind you that this podcast is a baby that is close, very close to my heart, and I'm always very grateful for all the feedback I'm getting, whether you are writing to me in person that uh, you appreciated some particular episode or the show in general, or you share it. Uh, when you subscribe and uh, rate and review the podcast, it all matters a lot and gives me the energy to continue this journey and uh, gives me also the valuable information on what you want to hear more of, what kind of guests, what kind of topics in the solo episodes. So please, please, please keep that coming. I really appreciate you. And um, let's just keep going with this journey because I love it and I hope so do you. So enjoy this episode and see you on the other side. Herman, warmest welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great for me to record this in person. It's not happening that often. So this is always the extra positive thing about um, connecting with people here in Iceland. So thank you for that. No problem. I think we've all gotten tired of the COVID period. So uh, meeting people again face to face is very welcome. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it is. I agree. So I have several topics that I would like to discuss with you. And maybe we start with the one about building the culture or team, because you have done it in different scales of mm-hmm. uh, of the companies, the different amount of employees that you would have. Yes. So I would love to know what you pay attention to most when you are hiring people, when you are onboarding them, yeah. uh, when you really de- follow their development and see whether they're the right fit. Yeah. Well, for me, it has always been mostly about character of the people. So I try when I have interviewed people, either if I'm meeting them for the first time, if I'm trying to hire somebody, or if I bought a company where we have a number of employees that I don't know, I think it's quite important to meet people in person and talk to them myself and try to read through the through the lines. The words that are spoken are not always the most important. It is very important to listen to what is not said. For example? For example, uh, if you have a certain position and you talk very narrowly around your position and nothing about the whole chain of uh, sales or chain of uh, uh, value creation within the company, then I know I have somebody that is focused, 
narrow-minded, doesn't see the big picture, and is not likely to, uh, let's say, grow on the job uh, quite so much. But then you meet somebody else in a similar position, and he's interested in the whole process, purchasing, HR, sales, marketing, distribution, the whole thing. Then I have found somebody that has more value to me and somebody who is more focused on the happiness of the customer than the happiness of himself. Do you feel like there is a function or a part of the organization where this focus and, in a way, narrow-mindedness makes sense? Mm -hmm. Or for whatever in the organization and whatever role you're looking for, you really want that holistic picture and big picture? Very important to have people who are totally focused on one thing. They normally never drop the ball, so you will probably very seldomly find any faults, problems, wrongdoings, things like that, because they are completely focused on what they do. And these are very often the same people that don't work to, they do not want to work more than they have to, meaning they are, if they are eight to five, they will leave at five because they have organized their job so they can leave at five. And everything is, uh, is 100% within the division. And I admire those people because they have a lot simpler life than myself. And uh, I think it's quite productive. I've had a number of such people on my staff, and they've very often been one of my most valuable players. So it, it really depends on what kind of team and function they are, or more what you already, whom you already have on the team and what you need to add? Yes, and, and also... I'm looking for, let's say, the spirit. Are people in the job they love today or are they looking to move to another job, either within the company or outside the company? So the narrow-minded people are normally not looking for another job if they're happy, if they have uh, decent salaries and a decent uh, work environment. They are happy to stay on for a longer time, which is very valuable for, for all businesses. But people that think about the big picture are always looking at the big picture for themselves as well. For good and for bad for the company. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, I mean, you have to mix it. Mm. So a good team is mix is a mixture of all types and characters, so that you have to uh, build a team that has certain strengths, and then you have certain weaknesses, and you have to try to to rectify these weaknesses over time. So when you say that you're looking for those things, what kind of questions are you asking? Or is it not even the questions on the conversation, but how the person behaves? What is it that you're on the lookout for? Well, the questions are normally quite, uh, let's say, open-ended. So certain things are, let's say, direct yes and no questions, maybe. But then I want to know what the views are on this, that, and the other. And people with no views on other things than just a job are not looking at the big picture. But then you dwell, you don't dwell on it. You dive into their details and you learn all the details that they have about their own uh, department or division or function. And you take out all the details that they know and the worries that they have and suggestions they have to improve things and uh, which are very often quite uh, useful and quite valuable for the business. So it is also a question. If, if it's a question of me coming in after an acquisition, Everybody's nervous because nobody knows me. So they don't know why did they buy the company? Who will they fire? What's going to happen to me? And all that is going on in their minds. So for me, it is important to try to break through, tell them immediately if there will be cutbacks or no cutbacks and what I'm looking to do with the company after the acquisition. 
So I am normally buying companies to to build. So I have never bought a company in dire straits that has to go into survival mode right away and you have to fire all the people and, you know, try to rescue things because that's not what I'm best at. I am better at buying companies and building them. So uh, you have to respect that, that people are nervous. They don't know what's going to happen next. So you have to address that issue and you have to try to get into the conversation to the level where people have a certain amount of trust quite soon, which, which I find quite uh, important. I think this is a very valuable experience that you have with acquisitions when you inherit a team right yes. from that company. Yeah. And uh, this is uh, something that a lot of um, people in corporate, for example, struggling. They're saying like, yeah, it's all good how you say about how whom to hire and how to compose a team, mm-hmm. but here is a team I have. And I need to figure out how to make that work. Yes. I don't. I can't fire seventy percent just because yeah. that doesn't feel aligned. Yes. So, with that experience of yours, tell us about about the about the biggest learnings from talking to the teams and figuring out how to help them get on board with the vision you have for the bigger yeah. picture. Uh, and what kind of actions can can be taken there when you feel like someone is out of alignment? Yes, when you inherit a team that is strategically well aligned, there is, let's say, good morale. Things are going really well. It's a profitable company. They've been doing quite well for many years. I think it's very uh, important that you as a manager, you align yourself with the team because they are working really hard to get good results for the business. And it's a lot easier to align one person, the manager, to be in line with the team rather than trying to change the mind of the team. The culture and uh, the team changes come over time. It can take three, four, five years while you are adjust certain things, little things. But uh, you as the leader, you can come up with the vision. You can come up with the goals and uh, the big picture things. But don't try to change the culture if it's not toxic. I mean. I've also inherited a toxic culture, but uh, that's a different thing uh, altogether. If you inherit a really good team with good results, don't try to change the culture. Just try to embrace it, understand it, and make the most of it. This is a very interesting point with the change of the culture. And you say three, four or five years that can take to adjust. And I'm thinking both about Icelandic culture, how impatient people are here, (laughs) but also entrepreneurs. Uh, how impatient people can be when they see the vision, they see the bigger picture and they want to get there as soon as possible, as yes. quickly as possible. So how are you with the patience there? Well, I'm I'm not that patient, but uh, I'm, I'm 61 years old, so I'm already quite experienced. I've been running my own businesses for over 30 years. So I know that good things take time. And if you're not uh, fighting a fire like an entrepreneur is very often doing, he maybe only has cash reserves for the next six months. So everything has to happen yesterday. That is not a position I've been for a long time. So patience is very important. You have to push because a business owner or a business manager with no goals and no end play and let's say no ambitions is not a good leader. Somebody who is just coming in, staying from eight until five, has nothing to say, has no goals, no push. Is not in the right job. He should be a caretaker of some sort, but uh, not a business leader. So, yes, for, for me, I'm impatient, but uh, also I'm quite realistic. Because you can push, but 
But if the market is not receiving your push, you're pushing for nothing. So you have to push in the right moments, in the right direction, with the right people to the right customers. So if you're always pushing the wrong customers, they will get annoyed and they will leave. So this is a delicate situation. You always have to be in line with the market. You can feel that you are a master of the universe, but you are truly not. The market is the master and you have to behave within the market. Now, we're, uh, it's a perfect transition to sales, which I also wanted to touch upon with you, with market maturity. You're saying the market is the, the, master. the master, right? Yeah. Have you been in those situations when you, you have the offering, whether it's products or services, that you know the market needs, but they have not matured to understand that that's their need? Have you been like, ahead of time? Yes, I've, I've been there a few times. I've been too early to market. and. Uh, I remember uh, I was at least 10 years too early with, with some things. Mm. And you can't really, you can push it, but it's not going to move anything. Then also in a small market like Iceland, there are factors you don't know because it's such a small community. Some things are called politics. It means that, yes, we are willing to make the change, but not with you because we don't like you or because my nephew is running a company in the same industry, same category or because this company buys this from us, then I want to buy this from them. So it's a vice versa business. So there are a lot of unknowns, especially in the small market. I'm sure it's in the big markets too, but uh, it's uh, quite visual here if you know who is who. And that's, uh, that's quite important in a small market like this. So yes, if you come too early to market, you know you have a great product, the price is correct, and uh, it's something that can help people um, let's say, uh, improve their work uh, uh, offering or, uh, or efficiency or, or whatever, you should push it, no doubt. But if you don't get any receivers, you have to back off and find something else. Because, like I say, the market is a master, and if you're not supplying what the market wants, you will quite quickly go out of business. And how have you been doing that? Given the market what they want, even if you feel like, okay, that's not really what they need. Did you try to educate the market to yes. kind of help them mature to your offering? Or and yes. what are the strategies there that you could suggest people follow? Well, well, for instance, uh, 30 years ago, when I was coming into the abrasives market in Iceland for the first time, everybody had just one question. What is the price of the cutting wheel that you're selling? And... This, uh, there was one price that was the lowest price. Everybody wanted to do a little bit lower to get the business. But after uh, getting introduction in Northern Italy, how things are being done there, I found out the price of the wheel doesn't matter. It's the price of the cut. What is the uh, wheel capable of cutting uh, in terms of volume of material? Then you know the cost. You don't know it before. So I went around Iceland probably 10, 15 times, met hundreds of customers. And when we started to talk about prices, I always took my product and said, let's go in the workshop and try it out. And then we'll try out what you're buying today and we'll see if it fits. And without a doubt, when they found out that my wheel was, let's say, 30, 40% more expensive, but after trying it, they found out it was 50% less expensive than the competition because it was so efficient. The price discussion completely changed. And 
many years after that, the only discussion between sales reps and these workshop owners was how many cuts can I get from a disc? Price wasn't an issue until it was number two or number three as an issue. So that's just one small example of how you can change a market, but it takes a lot of time, costs a lot of money. But uh, over a period of time, I was dominating the cutting wheel business in Iceland just because we have a different approach than anybody else. Because a cutting disc is a simple product. It's uh, less three uh, ingredients. And whoever wanted to use the uh, least quality of ingredients was the cheapest, but they had the, the worst product and the worst results as well. This is a brilliant example because what you're talking about, going around, talking to customers, showing them. Yes. It's not really sitting on the ivory tower and like, okay, yeah, I'll just wait until... Uh, the market understands and gets exactly. how brilliant I am. Exactly. Uh, and I, I got to think, uh, I don't know whether you, you would be <laughs> weird uh, about this comparison, but I got to think the uh, about the Spanx, which is the female products for sure. uh, clothing. Yeah. And uh, Sarah Blakely, the founder, is the first self-made billionaire. Exactly. Female bill- billionaire. And she did that for years. Yes knocking on the doors, walking around, showing people what the product actually means. Yeah. She didn't say like, okay, it's better and people just don't get it. And that's people who are stupid. Exactly. They're not stupid. They just don't know what they don't know. Yeah. And, and you can be the, the best, like the, the best service you can provide is actually to help them understand that they are asking the wrong questions exactly. and they, their business is winning. If you actually educate them to ask the right questions and look yeah. at the right things. And now she has a, a full line of products in Walmart all over the world and uh, doing really well. Yeah. Yes. You have to change let's say, the mindset, the perspective, and the information given to people, and they will change their behavior. But unless they are being educated, they will not change because they don't have no need. They know what they know. So, But you can't be really arrogant about it. You can't come in and say, I know what you don't know. And, you know, immediately the, the customer will dislike you. So, But if you come in with a happy face and you say, I got news for you. I just found out something. And then he knows that you know a little bit more than him, but you're not trying to push it down his throat. So, you know, after many years on the road, that was my best times doing sales on the road. I think it's the best education you can get. It's like five MBA degrees <laughs> in one, if you do it long enough. And you come in and people know that you come, you're not coming to sell them anything. You're just coming to educate them, tell them something new, show them something brilliant, and they will give you the orders. Because they know for you to come back, you have to have some revenue. So they will hold back some orders they could have placed elsewhere, and they will give it to you free. And how do you position that so that people know that you are there to educate them and not to sell? You have to come again and again and again. For the first three, four, five visits, you get no business. But if you keep coming and you keep it interesting always, and you never try to ram down a product on their throats, they will believe that you are truly there to be of any value and services to them. Because every year in Iceland, you have flocks of salespeople going around the island, visiting all these villages and and, uh, small towns, trying to offer something. But they will maybe only come once because next year they have a different job with a different company. But if you are the guy that comes every month Also in the winter, also in January, when there's a snowstorm and minus 20 degrees, then you have something valuable to offer. But if you're just the guy that comes in June, you don't come in July or August because you're on summer holiday, 
and you're not very valuable to that to that firm. So it's persistence, and that's been my career really sums it up in that uh, one word: persistence. That uh, you have to grind on. Have you always been like this? No, I don't think so. I've always been uh, competitive. I played sports for for a number of years, but uh, I think uh, it was only when I started my first business that I became let's say, this persistence because I was so determined that it wouldn't fail and I would do whatever it took. And for the first four years, I took no holidays. I worked seven days a week and neglected my family completely over that period of time. But after four years, we were on, let's say, safe ground. And we had a decent business and were able to pay a salary and, uh, and keep a decent uh, quality of life. So it takes a sacrifice to, to get going. At least I started with nothing. So many companies today start with a, a infusion of $10 million. So they don't have to be running around like headless chickens chasing businesses everywhere. But uh, I didn't have that luxury. So we started with nothing and uh, we built a really good business. And uh, But it took sacrifices to do it. What was your driver then when you started? And you were going 24-7 for four years, no breaks. Well, let's say... Uh, one of the drivers was that my former employee hated the fact that we left the business and uh, went into the same business they were in. So there was a fierce competition between the two. The other players in the same market were very established. So they had strong balance sheets, good business history. We had none of that. So the only way for us to compete with them was to work longer, harder and smarter. And that is, I think, how we were able to create something in a market that isn't that big in Iceland. It was industrial supplies, metalworking and such. And so that's how we did it. We, we worked longer, harder and smarter. Why did you decide to go from the employment from that company and create a competition with them? It wasn't really my decision. It was my friend who was the sales manager in that business became very infuriated with the policies that were put in place. And so he wanted to leave and he said, I want to run my own business, create my own policies, and I want you to join me. And after a discussion with my, my wife at the time, decided that it was a risk. It was a big risk, but we were willing to take it to try to create something of our own. So the decision was a little bit made for me in terms of, let's say, uh, if I wouldn't have left, I think I would have been sorry for the longest time. But I didn't at least try it. Because I felt I had something to, to offer, something to give, and that I would uh, I would not be happy to be, let's say, somebody's employee forever. And those policies that uh, your partner, the sales manager, uh, was not happy with, was it towards the employees, towards the customers? So it was the boundaries of the owner of the former company. They said they wanted to keep a really narrow focus. They didn't want to increase the product selection that we could offer our customers. And uh, we had uh, a good customer base that really wanted to give us more business because they liked the services that we had. But we kept on saying, sorry, we're not allowed to do that. We're not allowed to bring in more products, more selection and give you uh, a bigger service. So that infuriated him because he th thought that these were opportunities lost in the market. And uh, the owner was, let's say, scared in the terms of the product offerings. He didn't want to put more working capital towards the business. So that was mostly uh, why he got so infuriated. And also he was 
he was called sales manager. But if he wanted to do something that a normal sales manager would do, like take his customer out or or go visit uh, factories abroad or something like that, he always got a no. That was the only answer he ever got was, was no. So that infuriated him as much uh, also. Those experiences that you have as an employee, I bet they have formed how you have been building your own companies. Yes. So what what are the main learnings for you from from that experience? Never hire people for their hands. You have to hire them for their minds. So everybody has an idea. Not all the ideas are useful, but you have to discuss them and tell them why they are not useful. Or maybe there's a newer idea that has already overtaken the idea that this employee has. So I think it's very important when you, as an employee, uh, employer, when you're hiring people, you have to get the mindset, the character, and you have to realize that everybody's thinking at home after work. How was my day? Am I happy with what was going on? Did I have a conflict? Or did somebody tell me I did a good job? Or how was the information coming from the boss? How was last month? I knew we were really, really busy, but nobody told me if we made any profits. I think it's all quite important to to realize that you have actually hired a human mind and not just hands and legs. This is the mistake I see a lot of uh, leaders do. They hire great minds, yes, but then they act as like they're hands. having hands. <laughs> and that's something yeah. I had to work with my clients on to yes. really guide them. Like, hey, you, you're hiring the best team, like football players, and then yeah. you just let them sit on the... Uh, on the side bench and you were running like crazy instead of being a coach on the side you're running a crazy trying to to kind of fill all 11 spots of the team and that's just ridiculous and that's why people are unhappy that's why they're unhealthy that's why they're leaving they're looking for something else and it can be scary as hell to let go of their control and it's important for people to understand why they end up acting as if they only hire hands exactly even though they have the minds and also i mean uh, that's one of the small things that that i learned over time is that it is not so important how things are done it is that they are getting done and that everybody has their own way to do it and you can be impatient you can push uh, for the execution to be faster and all that stuff but don't dictate to people in small details how things should be done because if they have the right mind, they will figure it out and they will find a good solution that fits them. How are you doing that as a leader in, in practical terms? You just give the task, okay, this is the outcome I want. Yes. Do you coach people like, okay, this is how I think? Or if you notice that they did not deliver what you wanted, what's the process there? I try to talk about it in the beginning. I said, this is the outcome that we're looking to get. I want you to figure out how is how it's the best way for you to do it. If you don't have any ideas, you can come to me. I will give you at least one or two options that that I would think are are good solutions. But in the end, you have to figure this out. If you are, let's say, managing a project, you have to have some kind of mindset that is fitting that project. And uh, it is, of course, my job to select the right person for the job. So I don't put somebody who is not capable, doesn't have insight or information enough to, to complete the task. But my doors are always open, so anybody that wants to discuss, you know, they're not quite sure. So they come to me and say, I was thinking about doing this, this, and that way. And I say, okay, have you thought about this and that? Uh, these are potential problems in the, in the process. I say, okay, yeah, no, I didn't think about that. Okay, then the, here are a couple of options. And then you find out which way it works the best. And 
I find that my staff at least uh, have the biggest fulfillment when they have found out a way to do it and they finalize the task and they can come back and say the job is done. And uh, uh, the best thing is when they don't ask me anything because they found this out themselves. And uh, that's how you create value within the team. It's empowering. It's empowering. Because people do want to use their brains to do their talents, their passions, their ambitions. Yes. And if you give them space, but at the same time you have the support, you provide the support for them if they need it. And Uh, they know that they can always cash on that. (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, That's the best way of uh, creating the value. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. I want to roll back to what you said about this, those first years of, of being on the road mm-hmm. and trying to build this first business. Yeah. You said it came with the price, right? You you sacrificed yes. your, your family for that. Yeah. How was that process for you and your then wife? Uh, what are your learnings from that? Was it worth it? Would you have done anything differently or you feel like this mm. is the, the price that's absolutely worth it? Quite difficult to figure out. You never know if you had done things differently, what the outcome would have been. This is what we felt needed to be done. Uh, We were fighting for our lives every month. We needed to make uh, VAT payments. We needed to pay the suppliers. We needed to pay the rent for the housing. You had to pay pay the few employees. We had two employees for for some time and then three and, and so on. And the last people to be paid were us. So we were... In some months, we were living off our wives because we didn't bring home any money. It was all tied up in working capital. But, you know, the sacrifice was a decision. We took that uh, decision together. I don't dwell on it because I'm a person that is constantly looking through the front window and I'm always so excited for tomorrow. I have no idea what happened yesterday because it's behind me. It's mm-hmm. done. So I really don't dwell on it. But Without a doubt, there were there were personal sacrifices. Yeah, I really like this saying of one of the Swedish coaches that let. Uh, uh, he reminds people that the windshield is always bigger than the rear view, view mirror. Exactly. So this is what I hear from you as well. And the future is so exciting. I mean, I, I wake up every morning smiling because the future is so exciting. What excites you about the future? There are so many unknowns. <laughs> there are so many options and possibilities, endless possibilities. So for me, it's just, you know, you come out to a big football field because you uh, mentioned that before, a football team. Mm-hmm. And I played football for many years. And, you know, I could be playing Real Madrid today or Barcelona or just a local team. Doesn't matter. Uh, the, the options are endless. The possibilities are everywhere. So I'm just truly excited every morning. Has it always been exciting for you? Because I could imagine that there was people who freak out from that. They wake up and like, oh my God, so many possibilities. What do I do? How do I focus? What do I focus on? And true. I think that's true. I think many people don't want to have too many options and <laughs> don't want the, the whole world as their playing field. But uh, it has just never been my, my problem. I've always been that excited for the possibilities. I may have been tired. I have been absolutely gutted because we've been doing months and months and months of hard work but uh, my outlook has always been the same it's always been fantastically optimistic uh, stupidly optimistic sometimes but uh, and I'm, I'm always you know problems crisis I've had a few I've probably gone through four or five crises in Iceland over my 30-year periods so you learn how to behave what to think who to talk to and all that stuff and you 
at the end, you stop looking at it as crisis. These are just projects, come to the territory, find the solution, and keep going. Yeah. Persistence, just keep going. Yeah, I think it's something that uh, I, not I think, I, I have quite a lot of conversations about that these days with leaders, that we just need to accept it, that that shit will hit the fan. Sure. It, it inevitably does yeah. every so often. Yeah. You just need to accept that as a fact and build the mindset of how do I deal with that? Yeah. Have some kind of plan and strategy for what can what is the focus, what is the priority, yeah. how you can handle that, and so on and so forth. Yes, and always, uh, always think about what's the worst thing that can happen and play that game, play that chess. Okay, if this happens, then this happens, and then this happens, then you do this, and if this happens, then this. And at the end of the time, you find out, well, I'm going to be okay. No matter how it plays out, it's going to be okay. may not be as good as it was before, but it's going to be okay. So I think you need to find, then you try to find the real solution. I mean, and, and the market, again, will will guide you in some way. But uh, you can have uh, you can have a positive, let's say, uh, influence in, in, in the outcome and the end game. And also uh, people that are working with you, they need to find in your spirit that you have a full belief of a positive outcome so they can fight on. Because uh, most employees, let's say regular employees, uh, are willing to fight hard if they know that the leader has some destination, some end game that will uh, make everybody safe in the end. I want to roll back a bit to the personal sacrifice just because... It's something fresh to to me with my experiences yeah. with my business. How have you been dealing that with, with those months when you wouldn't be able to take the salary out? And as I said, you live on, on your wife's money. What has been going on through your mind? What kind of conversations have you had? How did you help yourself to get to that without, I don't know, feeling that less worth as a partner or anything mm-hmm. like that? I think most of the early days... I did it like most Icelanders and talked to nobody, uh, which is not the best way to do it. But uh, there was a lot of, let's say, uh, sleepless nights where you worry quite a lot and uh, you feel that you're overextended. You feel that uh, maybe you have built a business too quickly. Do I need to scale back? How can I, let's say... uh, fund my working capital needs for the next three or four weeks because I have large shipments coming in and uh, you need to be able to keep stock and inventory and all that stuff. So dealing with it, I really don't know how I dealt with it. I just kept on going and uh, every day was a fight. And like I said before, I woke up quite positive every day, some some day you come back home around maybe 10 o'clock in the evening and you're completely wasted. But I'm lucky in that respect that uh, after a good night's sleep, I always woke up positive again. But uh, it wasn't easy, I can, I can tell you that. And uh, it takes a lot out of you. And uh, back in 1998, I even had a burnout uh, period where I woke up one morning I could not remember a single uh, phone number uh, at that time. This is before the cell phone. And so normally I had like 50 to 100 phone numbers memorized. I I could not remember one phone number. And I was normally remembering between five and 10,000 
uh, item numbers, SKU numbers uh, from my inventory because I created all the SKUs myself. So they were quite easily to remember, but uh, I remembered nothing. And so I was completely wasted. Uh, and I tried to work for two days. I did very little. Uh, I had a discussion with my then wife and uh, we decided that uh, that we probably had a burnout situation on our hands. And I uh, I uh, left to the airport. I flew to Boston. And for four days, I just slept, ate, uh, read some business books and didn't go out of the hotel for four days. Flew back and was probably... 40% okay when I came back. So a part of my memory had, had been established and uh, most of my processes had been established. Many of these phone numbers never came back. And I did talk to a doctor. Uh, it was probably a year later after this happened. And he told me, this is very simple. You, you overfill the hard drive in your, in your head when you have so much going on. And you're trying to remember what the computer that you have on your desk remembers. So you have to stop uh, jamming information into your brain, which is already stored on the computer. That's mm -hmm. what the computer is for. So I somehow created my own uh, technique in the terms of I stopped paying attention, stopped uh, paying attention to SKU numbers or phone numbers or stuff like that. I just kept it on the computer. So I tried to remember more dialogue, more people, more personalities than, than useless facts that are stored somewhere. This sounds like a... Like you just decided, okay, I'll just focus on memorizing those things instead. Yes. But was it as simple as making a decision or was it a process of refocusing, recalibrating what well, you pay attention you're to? You're always trying to dig out of your head what you used to remember because it's just something that you do. I think it's quite, let's say, human to try to do it because you know you had the information stored somewhere. You're trying to figure out where is it. And sometimes something pops up and you said, oh, oh I knew it was there, so I found it. But uh, all in all, it was mostly a decision not to load your brain with useless information. Try to use it for something useful and try to clean up the hard disk that you have in your head. And uh, you can only do it by resting. Back in 98, I bet no one knew what burnout is here True. in Iceland. Nobody talked about what it. What was going on through your head? Like what happened to you then? What was your I, theory? To me, it was just exhaustion, ex exhaustion that, that I, I had been overdoing it for too long. And uh, so that this was some kind of nervous breakdown or a, or a long-term exhaustion that caught off uh, caught off with me, and uh, and it probably was. But uh, burnout is a is a later branding of this situation. I don't know if it was if this is the only thing it was. If it was a burnout, but it was definitely an exhaustion of a serious kind. Did you see any signs of that before, like looking backward now? or Nothing. I was really, I was tired. But uh, when you're working seven days a week, you're always tired, seven days a week. So there was nothing new, nothing that triggered that this should happen. This happened on a Monday morning, just, uh, you know, when I woke up. And, uh, and there was nothing really that I could uh, say led up to it that was obvious that this was happening. Mm -hmm. And what was going on in, in your head then? Did you just accept it? Okay, I'm tired. I need to take rest. Or like, what did you make that mean for you? Yes, I. In my mind, what uh, when I went to Boston uh, for four days, uh, I was alone, uh, and there was uh, nothing that I could do because there was no 
There was no internet connection to my company. There was no mobile phone to disturb me. So I was alone in another country in another time belt. And so I just thought a lot about why this was happening and uh, how I got here and how I would have to change. So at least when I came back, I only worked six days a week. So I stopped uh, working on Sundays and uh, we made that a family day so uh, that we were at home and doing something with the kids and stuff like that. But uh, I don't think that it was such an organized process of, of thought. You just found out that there was a problem and uh, the only way to fix it is by resting. That's what I did. And I changed my behavior, like I said, with trying to memorize everything and try to spend more time and more thoughts on people and processes rather than facts and figures. Mm. And talking about Boston, or before we go into that, when how many years into own business was that? Five years. Five years. So it already got more stable, right? Because you were saying yes. no, no vacation for first yes. four years. Yes. So maybe the body started relaxing a bit. Perhaps, yeah. And because before it was survival mode and then you just all the exactly. resources are spent yes. on that. I think it was full adrenaline every day, more or less. Yeah. And you mentioned Boston and we, when we were talking before the the interview, you, t- you mentioned that that's the place you visit nowadays. The and US, I visit sorry. mostly the US. Mm-hmm. So for holidays, I go mostly to Florida. I had been many times to Boston before, probably because it's the closest to Iceland. So it's only mm-hmm. like a five five and a half hour flight and it's a, a let's say it's a quality city with high standard of living good education level so you feel really safe and connected it's sometimes said that boston is the most european country your most european city in the, in the u.s it's probably true but nowadays over the last let's say 10-15 years florida has been my way of mm. of relaxation Mostly because I take my holidays during the winter when we have the darkest and the coldest time in Iceland. Then you go somewhere hot and Florida is perfect for that. Spain is too cold in that period for us, which is probably the most popular destination for Icelanders and many Europeans. But Florida in November, uh, February, March is 25 to 30 degrees sunshine and uh, It gives me the opportunity to load, to load my batteries up again. We have the time difference with Iceland, so it means at 12 o'clock in Florida, everything is closed down in the business community in Iceland. So there are, there are no phone calls, no emails, nothing coming in. So it's a perfect uh, turn-off, uh, let's say, period for me to go over there and take my holidays there. So just for our listeners, you, you're taking the whole month of November and the yes. whole month of March. Yes, And you leave your business and you go there. Yes. And you said that your son is taking over the CEO position. Yes, yes, yes. Is he involved in the business year-round? Yes. Mm-hmm. So he just steps up yeah. for that role. Yeah. Mm. He is the deputy CEO at the moment. And uh, he is better than me in that way that he went to universities and got his business degree. And uh, so in many ways, he's uh, very, very capable and very interested and very focused. And uh, in many ways... He's like me, but in most ways he's not. So I think we balance each other quite well. How is it to work with your kid? I love it. It's fantastic. Yeah. To see his development and also to learn from him and how to... It brings me back because I started my own business right at the same time that his age is now. So 
he has an opportunity I didn't have, but uh, because I started with nothing and he, he, he is not starting from nothing. But you can also feel that when I was at that age, I knew everything. I was all powerful. <laughs> but being 60 today uh, just tells me how stupid I was. But, uh, you know, that's how life is, I think. Do you try to bring, or like, how would I frame it, uh, create some tougher situation for him, given that you appreciate the tough times you've gone through because mm. they have formed how you are as a leader, as a business person, mm. and as a human? And now you say, like, okay, my, my, my son doesn't have to go through that because he, he has a well-established business to operate. What's your reflection on there? Uh, most of the time, I am trying to teach him that there is more gray in the world, in the business world, than white, uh, black and white, for sure. And he is more of a black and white person. So it's either on or it's off. But I'm always trying to teach him, give it time. There is a lot of gray area in there. Maybe there is a good opportunity or you don't have to be such an executioner to uh, make a decision immediately. I've learned over time that it is important to get all the information before you make a decision and not to make a decision before you have to because many things solve themselves without a decision. And uh, if you take an, an uninformed decision, you will have to address it again a week later or two weeks later when you have more information, you find out that there was a different approach that would have suited the problem better or the solution better. How do you know when is this point of no return? We're like, okay, now it's absolutely necessary to take this decision. When you talk to all the parties that are around the table, it may be processes or people or whatever, or a business relationship of some sort. When you talk to everybody and maybe talk to everybody twice because you have information from everybody that changes your views, then let, let it sit for two or three days. And then if nothing new comes up, it's time to make a decision. So you really give it time to see whether new information comes that might change your exactly, decision. Exactly. Because very seldom you know everything right away. And that's why I'm asking because it's a, a st struggle for many uh, um, entrepreneurs to, to know when is the information available enough to make yes. an informed decision. I know. But there is also so much fear of taking a decision too late. I know. And I could imagine that some of our listeners cringe when you say two, three days, you just wait for that. <laughs> Nothing happens. I mean, Earth keeps spinning around the sun and, uh, you know, just give it time. Everything needs time. And uh, it's also important to say, if you can make a part decision, that is better than not making any decision at all. So you don't have to swallow the elephant in one bite. So you say, okay, this is probably the route to go. But instead of doing it in one step, let's take like, like 25% or 40% of the way now. So we start the process, but let's make sure that everybody knows that there can be a 180 degree turn later on if we find out that we're on the wrong, wrong direction. And there's no, I mean, there is no uh, phase lost by changing directions because you can only know so much. And then situations changes. You are, the market is changing every day, every minute. And uh, you have to just read the situation and try to figure out uh, what's the best approach, uh, where to go, how to do it, who to play with. And it's, uh, it's a constant uh, juggle of things. 
I think uh, running a business is a little bit like being a sound engineer in a studio. You have probably three or four hundred buttons that you have to, you know, adjusting all the time, a little bit at a time to get the perfect sound. And always, you know, once in a while, you get a bad tone, you have to adjust it and then keep on. But don't adjust it just to adjust it. If you have a good tone, just keep it and try to protect it. That's a beautiful analogy. Yeah. If we go back quickly to the to your two month per year off. Yes. You could imagine that a lot of entrepreneurs listening to us thinking, I would I can't imagine getting there. Exactly. So how was your journey with getting there? Both with giving yourself permission to do it. Um, your motivation, why you did it, mm-hmm. and also how did you build the business around that so that it actually would function? Well, it's uh, like everything else, it's a process. <clears throat> so the first time I did it, I was absolutely sure that I was connected to the business the whole time. So every morning I woke up between 6 and 7 because you have a different time schedule in the U.S. <clears throat> and I was working online probably two or three hours every day. Until my key people in the business said, none of the things you were doing this morning, we wouldn't have done during the day. So why don't you try not to log in tomorrow and let us just do it? So I got help from my colleagues and, and my, uh, my employees. And, you know, after a couple of days, you find out, uh, we are talking about an established business. So, but, but after a couple of days, you find out that nobody misses you. Everything is working, you know, completely fine. And if there's a problem, somebody will call. Do you need to take a break for, for some water or something? No, I'm, I'm okay. okay. But <clears throat> so. And what did that mean for you? Like, you would be like, heck, I built an amazing business or I'm running an amazing business where not, I'm not irreplaceable. Or did it mean, like, what do I do now? Like, what is my role in this business? Do, am I really needed there? So how, how was that process for you? Yeah, that process was mostly that I was proud that uh, the team had confidence enough to take on any responsibilities that usually are on my table. Mm-hmm. And if anything was, let's say, more important, it just waited for a couple of weeks. So when I came home, I was maybe presented with something that I didn't want to touch. And uh, they didn't also want to disturb me because it wasn't, uh, let's say, uh, very important in terms of time. But uh, so I was mostly proud that the team was uh, had the confidence and the processes in order so that it wasn't really important for me to be on top of things the whole time. And did you, did that change anything, how you run your business, whether it is about the strategic things? roles uh, or you just got the confirmation that what you've been doing is right and you continue doing that no i I think it changed uh, in a certain manner that i gave let's say more power to more individuals Mm -hmm. so i'm constantly trying to push off my table projects that uh, let's say start there and then i try to get it on to somebody else if i find somebody with uh, with time to take it on and uh, I think I'm not a really good leader in that terms that I still have too many things on my table myself. There are, let's say, two schools in that. One of my friends who uh, has been a CEO for a long time, he keeps telling me, if you have any projects on your table, 
you're not a good boss because you should never have a project on your table. They should all be handled by somebody else. I don't see it exactly the same way. I want to know if a project is viable, interesting, valuable before I hand it to somebody else or or say no and let's not continue on this journey. Stuff like that. So everybody has to find their own style. And uh, my style has always been let's let me look at it to begin with. If it's interesting, I hand it over to somebody I trust to to finish it off. So yeah, these holidays that I take uh, to me are really, really valuable. They are both a reward for a job well done and they are also a way for me to reconnect and let's say create new thoughts, new ideas. I think a lot about let's say our processes and our personnel when I'm on holiday and I often take decisions to make changes when I come home come home because I've had time to think them through which you don't have if you're constantly working in a uh, in a stressful environment so for me uh, it's become uh, a necessity and uh, what inspired me to do it in the beginning is that uh, I went on a administrative uh, education program in Barcelona in ESA Business School and uh, one of the leaders there that came as a a lecturer he talked about the 100 day program so i adapted that in some ways so that i work full force for 100 to 120 days and then i rest for 30 days and during the 30 days i try to create an agenda for the next 100 days so when i come back from holiday we start a new process mm. of some kind to try to build the business even further it can be you know internal uh, processes that we change new products we take on or new small businesses we buy and add on or we try to add new value added services or stuff like that so for me if i wouldn't take these uh, extended holidays i think we would have less business so in a way you do work during those holidays right it's it's just higher level yes. thinking strategic reflection planning so and play time yeah, yeah. You know, you go to the beach, you play play golf, you meet friends and uh, stuff like that. So it all, I think, it rests your brain, but it frees up a space in your brain so that you can also create and think something new. And to wrap up, for the genius leaders listening who are thinking, how the heck can I get there where Herman is with allowing myself mm. to take that play time and rest time and also how how to build the business? What would be a mind shift that you can suggest people to, or or some action, some step that can help them get a bit closer to that goal? Yeah, of course, you have to do it step by step. I think uh, the first step is just to take a week and be absolutely out of reach for a whole week, go to another time zone, so you're not constantly being, let's say, run by emails and stuff like that. You can even close your inbox. I recommend it so that you can close your inbox for, like for seven days, meaning that if there is a, an emergency that comes up, the only way to reach you is by calling you. And that gives you a peace of mind because when you run by emails, and you know I'm a person that had uh, 100 to 200 emails a day, uh, your brain never switches off. On holiday, you are always looking at your phone, and there are emails after emails, and uh, you are just working, but you're not in the office. So there's no rest. I know like uh, some big German companies, they close down the inboxes of every uh, employee that goes on holiday 
first, so that they are not spending their free time on the job. And secondly, so that uh, the customers know that they have to find somebody else. So they are actually dealing with the, the company and not just the employee. And third, so when you come back from holiday, your inbox is empty. So you can start from fresh. I think it's quite a clever strategy. It doesn't work for everybody, but I think it's a, a clever strategy. So for all the entrepreneurs that are burning their candles at both ends, I think they need to learn that uh, the value of downtime is extremely high and to not take any downtime is a mistake. Maybe it's just Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, doesn't matter, just switch it off and completely switch environments and, and try to do something else than they're doing every day. And if you think about your first four years when you didn't take any vacation, yes, uh, you would, would you still recommend uh, entrepreneurs to go through that with the intention of building the business where they can take this time off? Or would you suggest to try to build this business or design it mm. to have those rests already from the start? I would recommend a rest from the start. Mm. It is unhealthy. It is what we did. Uh, it is what we had to do or we felt we had to do it because we didn't have money to hire employees. So we did all the jobs ourselves. And uh, everybody's done the bootstrapping. And I know there's so many business stories I've read where people were working 18 hours a day for many years before, you know, finding a business that creates some kind of revenue stream that makes uh, makes it viable. But uh, I think everybody has to find their own way. But uh, rest is underrated as a important factor of getting results done because I, when i think back i'm absolutely sure that many uh, of these days during the four-year period i was probably just working on 60 to 70 percent uh, capacity because i didn't have more energy there's a little bit like having your car with a very weak battery and then the snow comes and the frost comes and one day the battery is at the end you're not going anywhere Herman. It was a longer conversation than I expected, but I, I just uh, wanted to get your experiences. They are so rich and so valuable for so many entrepreneurs on different stages in life. So thank you so much for sharing the self link today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Genius Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, hit the subscribe button. Please rate, review, and share to help more people discover the show and become the better leaders. For more conversations about living in your zone of genius, connect with me on LinkedIn. Genius Leadership is an honors conversation about leading yourself and others. And it is my honor to be a guide in overcoming everything.